Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. It's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app and listen to us live anywhere in the world. Only if you download our app though right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast and listen at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but of course I'm delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another good show on tap for you today in our second hour two conversations. Up first, for the first time in over 60 years, the union representing Hollywood actors and performers and the union representing writers are both out on strike together, effectively shutting down Hollywood. We'll speak with award-winning writer and producer Anthony Sparks from the Writers Guild of America and actress Sherry Belafonte from SAG-AFTRA at the top of Hour 2. On the B side of Hour 2, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. We'll speak with the co-author of this new book, Leah Rothstein. In our third hour, it's been a year now uh, since President Joe Biden signed an executive order aimed at enhancing police practices across the nation. So, how are we doing? Over the weekend, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter, but a decade of protest later, black lawmakers in Congress are now intensifying their call for further action in the realm of police reform. So what have we really accomplished over the last 10 years? And our three will talk with one of the nation's leading police procedure and use force experts, Tim T. Williams, Jr. But let's commence today's program talking politics with our regular contributor, the most widely read Latino columnist in the nation and the host of the very popular podcast, Ruben in the Center, Ruben Navarrete, Jr. Ruben, how are you today, sir? Brother Tavis, so good to be with you again. Thanks for having me. It's good to hear your voice. Good to have you on. Before I jump into all the politics, and there's a lot to talk about in this hour, a couple of things, um, and I'll put you on the spot here. Um, don't know if you have thoughts on either of these, but knowing you, you do, because that's what, <laughs> that's what columnists do. They have thoughts on everything. Uh, number one, right. uh, Black Lives Matter. We had a we had a grand celebration here in Lamert Park just outside this station on Saturday all day. Uh, tons of folk came out. Hundreds of folk were out uh, celebrating uh, the 10th anniversary of this organization, what they've been able to accomplish. Uh, certainly not without controversy, uh, but it's hard to believe it's been 10 years since um, Black Lives Matter came into our consciousness. Uh, there were the mothers and fathers of all kinds of persons killed uh, over the last 10 years, including, of course, uh, Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin, uh, was on stage. There was Cornell West. There was Chuck D, a public enemy. All kinds of folks showed up uh, for, again, a great celebration in Lamert Park this Saturday. I want to thank BLM. Um, and uh, everybody who was involved, uh, the host committee that I was honored to be a part of that brought this thing um, to bear on Saturday. Again, it was a great day in Lamert Park. But your thoughts, Ruben, um, quickly about BLM 10 years in. And I want to ask you a couple other things. We're getting some politics here. Well, you know, there's a lot there. Um, first of all, I gave a talk to a group of uh, law enforcement officers last week. I do that twice a, twice a year. Mm-hmm. 
there were a couple of African-American police officers in the audience. And when we started talking about things like systemic racism and policing and white privilege, I got a lot of nodding of heads, you know, uh, from those black officers. And so I told those folks what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Uh, but when BLM came up, uh, it was me who brought it up because we were talking about sort of if you don't define yourself, your your adversary, your opponent will will define it for you, mm-hmm. define you for you. Mm-hmm. And I thought of BLM as an example. And then I later I thought this is really an unfortunate place to be. BLM should never have been seen as the enemy of police mm-hmm. or the adversary of police. Uh, given that so much police violence occurs against the black community, I understand it was probably inevitable they would come out that way. But nothing is well served by BLM being seen as the enemy of law enforcement because then law enforcement responds in kind. Uh, and, and so that was just kind of a, an afterthought uh, when I gave that talk. I think BLM is an I- example of an idea that was very simple, became very complicated. You said became controversial. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't necessarily package it well, sell it well, market it well, communicate it well. You and I communicate for a living. We know how crucial that is. Before long, people were saying, well, all lives matter and blue lives matter. And, and, and at that point, the train had gone off the tracks. Lastly, let me confess that as a as the uh, son of a law enforcement officer, my dad was a cop and on the job for 37 years. When I see videos on YouTube and elsewhere of people marching behind a BLM banner and chanting, you know, uh, pig, pigs in a blanket, you know, fry them like bacon. Uh, and people talking about killing cops and people at BLM rallies saying, what do we want? And then somebody saying dead cops. There's no other way for me to come down on that. You know, I have my own prejudice and bias and my own upbringing. As a son of a cop, I'm not going to condone that. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a, a very good idea that needed to be put out there, that black lives do matter. But that train went off the track like five minutes after it left the station. And it became very controversial, very confusing, not communicated well. And uh, to the degree that it saw law enforcement as an enemy, be prepared because you don't want law enforcement to respond in kind. Yeah. So um, this is why Ruben and I have been friends for 30 yeah. years. But this is also why <laughs> uh, I believe in fighting, <laughs> hey. with, uh, in fighting <laughs> with your friends. Uh, sometimes I ask him a question. I say, why did I do that? Why did I ask Ruben that question? Uh, but I always want to hear his perspective. And, and I want to hear it because uh, while this station is clearly and unapologetically black and progressive, um, it, it always, uh, I, I'm always uh, enhanced in my own uh, commentary by hearing the, the thoughts of others. There's some of what Ruben said, I, 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 I take. Uh, I take that every organization has persons connected to it, and sometimes persons who are trying to exploit it, who are not connected to it, uh, that will say and do things uh, that are indefensible. But at the end of the day, um, uh, what I what I don't accept is Ruben's characterization that they are the enemy of the police. Some may want to frame BLM as the enemy of the police, um, but I see it the exact opposite, that for 10 years they've been doing their best uh, against all the odds to hold uh, law enforcement accountable. Um, we see that issue uh, fundamentally differently. Um, but ha- ha- having, having said that, um, I do think um, that the future for Black Lives Matter um, is fraught with a great deal of tension. If you did not see yesterday uh, Erica Smith's um, article in the L.A. Times about the future of Black Lives Matter, I highly recommend it. Erica was, uh, I saw her on Saturday. Uh, she was moving around and talking to people and taking notes. 
on Saturday. And then, of course, her, her article dropped on Sunday. Uh, but if you didn't see Erica's piece yesterday about the future of Black Lives Matter, what all of this controversy means and how they navigate through it and what happens to organizations at the 10-year mark. And every organization, you know, has moments where they ebb and flow. It was a powerful piece, uh, which I can't do justice to. But I encourage you to read the piece by Erica Smith as a black woman. Um, who was just, you know, frank and honest and, and laid it out. And Melina Abdul is quoted in the article. Patrice Cullors is quoted in the article. So check out Erica's article yesterday. I digress on that. A lot more to cover uh, when we come forward in this hour with Ruben Navarrete Jr. on KBLA Talk 158. I was saying a moment ago uh, that sometimes you have to fight with your friends. And Ruben and I have been friends for 30 years. We've also been fighting for 30 years on a variety of things. As a matter of fact, speaking of columns, um, Ruben's column last week um, was a column that focused on uh, he, he called me one day and asked me um, uh, to talk to him about my views on affirmative action, and I did. And uh, to his credit, he was fair and, uh, uh, I, hate, I hate to say fair and balanced, but he was uh, fair and honest uh, in the column he wrote last week about our friendship over 30 years and how you know we agree on seven, eight, nine out of ten issues. But that one issue that he and I have never agreed on is affirmative action. But he was uh, honest enough to, to take my points uh, uh, of view. Uh, last week and to feature that in his column that ran in papers all across the country. I got all kind of uh, responses last week um, uh, thanks to Ruben's column. So I appreciate him for giving me a platform. And, of course, I give him a platform to hear uh, what he has to say on this program as well. We've done that together for 30 years. That said, Ruben, um, let me let me just ask you. I was thinking about this during that break. If there had been, and I know, you'll, I know you'll be honest with me as you always are, given our friendship and brotherhood over these three decades, if there had been, and I would argue that there should have been and frankly still needs to be, given all the stuff that we hear from you every time you come on this program. Had there mm -hmm. been had there been a decade ago, an organization started called Latino Lives Matter. And that organization, Latino Lives Matter, uh, LLM instead of BLM, if they had had the success that Black Lives Matter has had in getting people to focus on police accountability in raising issues about the sanctity, the humanity, and the dignity of Latino life, if they had had success politically, economically, socially, and culturally, if all around the globe people would be people people uh, started chanting "Latino lives matter," as they've done over the last ten years with the phrase "Black lives matter," would your commentary this morning be the same? Well, one of the things you said, I kind of got stuck on the word you said. Had it been as successful as BLM. So there's still a debate to be had about actually how successful BLM has been. And I guess in the first, the first instance is you still have the same outrageous police violence against black people today that you had 10 years ago. Indeed. If, if you want to say that they've been successful because they've established a brand and the brand has been up for 10 years, then okay, that's the case. But if ultimately they had a cause and a mission, you know, mission not accomplished, uh, so I think that's, that's part of the, the narrative. But in terms of the overall question, the funny thing is, you know, we've done this before. Latinos have had a group like this, and African-Americans have had a group like this. The degree to which BLM wants to keep police accountable, that's a really commendable idea, but it's not an original one. It's something the Black Panthers were doing in the 1960s and 70s, mm -hmm. late 60s and through the 70s, when they would actually go follow police along, you know, armed with weapons and the right to carry and they, you know, monitor police interactions with folks. And um, I would say that that was a commendable, then and now, a commendable mm -hmm. goal to keep police accountable. And you had the Latino equivalent, which was the Brown Berets, mm -hmm. which was started by a guy, I think his name was uh, David Sanchez there in Los Angeles. Uh, and likewise, they did the same sort of thing. So, you know, everything that's old is new again. 
And, um, and so we've been down this road with Latinos before, but I would use the Brown Braves as an example. There are areas where, you know, I studied them in college that I thought they were successful, many areas where they were not successful. And, um, and I, I'd say, yeah, my commentary would be the same, that I'd have to measure the Brown Berets and say, man, y'all need a better publicist. <laughs> you need to communicate better. Exactly what's your message? You know, are you pro-police, anti-police? Are you pro-community? And I think, Tavis, you know these organizations, it takes them sometimes a whole decade or more to define themselves, to understand what their mission is as it evolves. And there's many black organizations and Latino organizations that are in business today that are still not clearly defined. Yeah, I think I I, think, I, hear, I hear your response, and I'll move forward. I want to cover some more ground here. Um, but I, I knowing you as I do, and given how 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 upset you get, how rankled you are consistently uh, about <laughs> this country, Republicans and Democrats, as you would put it, and I would agree in this regard. Right. Not taking the right. issue of immigration seriously. And not valuing the lives, the way you've written repeatedly about the ways they mistreat your people at the border and beyond. I can't imagine, I can't imagine your protestation notwithstanding. I think you're not being completely honest. I can't imagine that you'd be disappointed, even, even if nothing had happened because of Latino Lives Matter if that had started a decade ago, if the only thing they had done was to sear that phrase, to sear that phrase into the consciousness of people in this country and around the world, that the lives of your people matter, I can't imagine you'd be upset about that. I think you're not being completely honest, Ruben. Well, I don't think we have to do a hypothetical. As I said before, you know, I met you when I was 26 years old and we hosted a radio show in L.A. together. But when I was 23 years old, three years earlier, my first job out of college was teaching a course in Chicano Latino studies at Fresno state. Yep. And, uh, as a 23 year old. And I remember as an instructor and I remember my older colleagues who were all baby boomers had a very negative opinion of the cops. I think that's fair to say. Right. So Latino baby boomers who are now in their seventies, right. were were just as anti-cop. If you want to use that phrase or as critical police as some members of the black community were mm-hmm. because why? Because you had the same sort of abuses against Latinos and, the farm worker union and all that. Right. And I was the odd man out as the son of a cop. I just felt that was not the way most Latinos felt that they didn't have that chip on their shoulder with regard to, uh, to cops. And so, yeah, we fought it out yep. three years before I was fighting with you. I was fighting with my <laughs> Latino boy. Let me ask you. I fight with everybody. You know yeah. me. I fight with everybody. Yeah. That's why, right. that's why you're in the center and you know my critique of that, but I'll leave that alone <laughs> for now. Um, I, I, I think, I think these days it's hard to be in the center, uh, with the way this democracy is going, this experiment in democracy with the way the world is going. I, I, I love Ruben, but I, I, I press him all the time. How in the world can you be in the center? Uh, this, this organization, no labels is trying to get Joe Manchin to be their okay. candidate. I mean, why, why in the world would I give any consideration in a moment like this, where this country is this divided, why in the world would I give any consideration to a, a, a campaign uh, or any candidate who's running on a, a, a ticket called No Labels? I mean, this is not the moment in this country's history to not be taking sides. Our democracy is on the precipice of failing. It is fragile. Um, cops are still killing too many people. Um, the, the ranks of the poor continue to expand. I mean, don't get me started. How in the world can you be no labels? I mean, I, again, I, I love Ruben, but this notion of being in the center in a moment like this is problematic for me. And I'll let him push back when he gets yeah. a chance here. But but here's, 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 here's what I want to get to. Um, since you mentioned a couple of times, and I know this, of course, over our 30-year friendship, that you are the son of a cop. Uh, we're going to talk about this more in our third hour. But it's been a year now since Joe Biden uh, signed that executive order 
trying to do his part to the extent that he could with a Senate that wouldn't move and do anything, tried to do his part a year ago um, to uh, enact some legis- uh, uh, some some demands uh, that would hold police more accountable. It's been a year. Again, we'll get into that in the third hour in detail. But just give me a top line of what you think Biden has accomplished or not as it relates to doing his part to hold cops accountable. He's done nothing. He's done nothing. I'm a, I, I learn a lot from watching and listening to your one, one of your good friends and brothers, Cornell West. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's on your show or when he's on other shows, and he'll just let the fur fly, brother. Yeah. He'll just tell you how it is. And he'll tell you that, that Joe, Joe Biden, aside from signing his, his executive order, there was no follow-up, no, no monitoring of this to see how it was going to go, no accountability, no benchmarks. Uh, you just signed it. You know, signed it and forgot it. But it's, I'm not surprised by that because Joe Biden is such a phony, such a dishonest man when it comes to the issue of crime, policing, and, and, and frankly, African-Americans uh, as it relates to crime and policing, because this is the same Joe Biden when he was in the Senate. And now I'm going to sound like Brother Cornell West. I'm going to remind you that when he was in the Senate, he, he signed, he authored, he bragged about, and he was proud of the 1995 crime bill, mm-hmm. the racist 1995 crime bill that increased mass incarceration for, that, that fueled mass incarceration for African-Americans and Latinos. Mm-hmm. And you know how, I, I looked this up the other day, or some time ago when I was writing about it, the crime bill was written by Biden's staff in, in conjunction with, in partnership with, the nation's largest police unions. There is a reason that bill is so odious. Mm-hmm. It's so foul. It was written by cops. Joe Biden then went around the country and bragged about it. He called it the Biden bill, the Biden bill. So Joe Biden made his bones in this business and politics, let's be clear, by protecting white folks against black folks. He went to white folks in the lunch bucket areas and the Rust Belt states and the working class whites and said, vote for me. I'll protect you against these black folks. And he partnered up with the police unions, which, by the way, I don't need to tell you are mostly white, to do this bill. Now, many years later, in a different incarnation, I'm supposed to forget all this. I'm supposed to not say this. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to say he invented himself. He's evolved. Because you signed this bill, and I say BS on that. Yep. To, to Ruben's point, uh, that uh, I love the phrase that Dr. West lets the fur fly. Indeed, he does. Um, he was with <laughs> us. He was with us this Saturday on stage uh, at the BLM 10th anniversary uh, celebration, and uh, he, he told the truth then, as he as he always does. And then um, over the weekend, he did another interview with the New York Post. And if you've not seen his interview in the New York Post uh, again, I ask you uh, and invite you to Google it. Uh, Cornell West is of a major concern to Democrats. Uh, David Axelrod just a week or so ago tweeted, and I'm paraphrasing here, that Biden and the Democrats better beware of Cornell West. Because if this Negro, if this brother starts to gain some traction, if he starts to gain some traction uh, and starts siphoning off uh, votes, um, I don't want him to become the Ralph Nader uh, of this election. Uh, that said, um, if he if he starts to gain some traction, and finds himself on the debate stage, uh, it's a whole nother contest at that point. If Cornell West makes the debate stage, knowing this brother as I do over 30 years, it's a whole nother world. I raised this New York Post article because, to the point that Ruben just made, um, the headline in the New York Post over the weekend in an interview with Dr. West uh, was that he accused Biden of engaging, uh, engaging in crimes against black humanity. Yep. It's, it's a it's it's a damning indictment. Um, he says that Biden has engaged in crimes against black humanity. His point was the same point that Ruben just made, um, that in many respects, um, it is the prison industrial complex 
that is growing so significantly uh, that warehouses black men that Joe Biden has aided and abetted over the course of his career. Now, this issue has been out there for a while. You heard Ruben say it's 94, 95. Dr. West ain't the first one to raise it, but he's the first black person of his stature to go at Biden so hard on his role in expanding the prison industrial complex, which indeed does, in fact, warehouse black people. Dr. West goes in and offers a further critique that black folk have forgotten that and they've forgiven Joe Biden, it seems, in part because he puts a lot of black faces in high places. But that's symbolic. It's not substantive. And so the irony of this conversation, although I was slapping Ruben around a few minutes ago, and he was slapping back in this regard. Ruben and Dr. West are on the same page. So go figure. It's that big in the center thing that 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 I'll always get. <laughs> but in this regard, while Ruben and I disagreed moments ago, he and Dr. West are simpatico on this particular issue. So, Ruben, I don't know if you saw that post issue, but I, given what you just said, you'd be delighted in reading uh, the interview with Dr. West in New York Post. Where again, he goes in on Joe Biden, on the role that he's played uh, in this um, uh, prison industrial complex, which has grown over over his watch. Uh, again, warehousing black and brown people, I might add. I digress on that point, but Dr. West goes in on Biden uh, in that in that New York Post article. Looking at my clock here, I got just a minute here before news, traffic, and, and sports. Let me tell you where I want to go uh, when we come forward. Um, Ron DeSantis, you may have heard, and if you haven't heard, I'll tell you now. Over the weekend, story broke, he's laid off a, a, a significant slice of his campaign staff. Um, he is uh, trailing, and I've got some poll numbers to share with you in a moment here. He's uh, trailing badly uh, to Donald Trump. And with all the Trump stuff that we see going on and all the Trump stuff that we know is to come, there are more indictments to come. He's still, still standing firm and gaining traction in the polls. Trump is so much so that DeSantis is laying off campaign staff just a few months into the race um, because he doesn't have the money uh, and because he's not tracking well. Um, so Trump continues to soar. What might surprise you is the amount of money that Tim Scott has raised. You may recall when Ruben was last on this program, maybe the last time or the time before that, I asked Ruben this question, whether or not he thought because Tim Scott was black, and Republicans know how they've maltreated black people. They know what they're up against. They know what the Supreme Court is doing, passing laws, uh, wiping out affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe Tim Scott will catch fire early on as their way to show, hey, we ain't racist. See, we support Tim Scott. I question whether or not Tim Scott would catch fire before anybody else. Wait till we come forward and I tell you how much money Tim Scott has raised. More to talk about with Ruben Alvarez Jr. when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Heard any other talk radio lately that sounds anything like this? We didn't think so. You're listening to Unapologetically Progressive KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tabby Smiley. He's Ruben Navarrete Jr. And uh, we are uh, fighting uh, as we often do. Because <laughs> as I said earlier, sometimes you got to fight with your friends. I love Ruben dearly and uh, always honored to have him on to hear his point of view, which I want to do uh, around the issue now of Ron DeSantis. Before I get to these uh, numbers, uh, which are fascinating, Ruben, you may have seen these, uh, but the audience uh, will be updated on them in just a second here. Uh, the fundraising numbers here, who's leading uh, the 2024 money race so far. Uh, but Ruben, your thoughts on the fact that Ron DeSantis, this is big news over the weekend, that DeSantis has laid off campaign staff uh, for all that talk, uh, for all that uh, bravado that we got from DeSantis when he announced he can't catch Donald Trump, never mind all the drama that Donald Trump is up against, uh, DeSantis laying off staff. How do you read it? 
Well, yeah, I want to go back uh, before we get to DeSantis and go to something, a very similar topic. We talked about no labels a second ago. Sure. It's tied into the DeSantis story mm-hmm. because the choices are so bad. The choices are so bad this time around, and they often tend to be, that if people have to look at a ballot that says ultimately Biden versus Trump part two, mm-hmm. those no labels numbers go up. Support for a third party goes up. And so I think that was, that was always sort of the, the calculation. And if DeSantis is in the mix, if it were Biden versus DeSantis, uh, it's not much better because DeSantis has incredibly high negatives, mm-hmm. even higher personal negatives than Donald Trump does. Trump at least has a following of people who love him, who, who you know, they appreciate his, his social skills. He, see, he talks to them. He likes them. Trump, Trump loves himself, but he also loves being around people. Mm-hmm. Not so much for DeSantis. We've been seeing for a couple of years now, Tavis, that, that DeSantis is a very interesting case study because here's a guy who they call the resume. In California, they call him the resume. I'm sorry, in Florida. They call him the resume. Mm-hmm. You know, Yale undergrad and Harvard Law School and was in Congress, now the governor, won re-election by over 60%. So he looks great on paper, but he doesn't have social skills. And what this election is about, I believe Ron DeSantis has sent us to remind us that when you're hiring a candidate for a job or let alone for president, you need to have social skills. You, it doesn't do any good to be the smartest person in the room or have a great resume if people don't want to be around you. And that's where we are with DeSantis. And I'll I'll end with this. Uh, Barack Obama was a great retail politician. He liked people. He enjoyed people. He projected well. People wanted to be around him. Bill Clinton was the best I've ever seen at this, and most of us have ever seen at this, a natural politician who loved people. There are people who were interviewed, who Republicans, who never voted for a Democrat in their life, met Clinton. He locked eyes with them, and they said, I'm voting for this guy mm-hmm. because he had that. And I'm going to name two Democrats who didn't have that, and they couldn't be taught it. Hillary Clinton didn't have that. And Al Gore didn't have that. And that's just the truth. Those two Democrats lost because they could not match what Clinton and Obama had, which is they didn't project that they were actually happy to be there, that they wanted to be around people. And Bill Clinton tried to teach Hillary. It didn't work. He tried to teach Al Gore. It didn't work. You cannot teach this stuff. And Ron DeSantis cannot be taught this stuff. He doesn't have the social skills uh, to last in this race. Yeah, he's laying off people. He won't be around for long. Yep, um, I think you're right. I don't think he's going to last uh, too much longer. We we will see. Uh, he may be out before this thing actually gets started in earnest. We we uh, again we'll keep tracking that and um, um, see how he how he ends up. Um, to the money that I that I promised I'd get to. I want to talk about two issues. I want to talk about uh, Republican Republicans and their race problems. And these race problems are adding up. It's getting worse and worse. Some, some more news uh, out this morning uh, about. Uh, uh, Republicans and, and the issue of race. We'll get to that in a second here. But speaking of race, so there, there are two or three, three uh, to my mind, uh, three black men uh, now running for the Republican nomination. Uh, Tim Scott is one of those three. Uh, and uh, here's, the, here's the cash on hand so far. Uh, as of June 30th, this is the cash on hand. Donald Trump has $22.5 million on hand, 22.5. Tim Scott has $21.1 million on hand. Hear me now. Hear me now. Donald Trump, 22.5 mil. Tim Scott, 21.1 mil on hand. Joe Biden, 20.1 mil on hand. Ron DeSantis, 12.2. Uh, it goes from there. Here's my point, Ruben. You heard the numbers. Donald yeah, Trump has yeah. more money than anybody right now, number one. 
Tim Scott is in second place with $21.1 million in fundraising. He has more money on hand right now than the president of these United States. And Ron DeSantis is way down at 12.2 and laying people off. I come back to the issue I raised earlier. Um, uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a bad man. I'm a bad man. I'm just going to be a little arrogant here. I told y'all. I told y'all a few weeks ago. That these Republicans were going to get behind Tim Scott at least early on if to do nothing else but to make the point. See, we can support a Negro candidate. We don't hate. We can support a colored candidate. And hold on to that thought. I'll come back to the colored comment in just a second. There's some news around that. But what do you make of the (laughs) fact that Tim Scott is sitting at $21 million in fundraising just behind Donald Trump? Yeah, you and I both said don't sleep on Tim Scott. Uh, I wrote a column saying that you know he's going to have his moment because he is uh, one of the few candidates in the race. Nikki Haley is another that actually projects a positive image of America. The, Demo- the, the Republicans are a bunch of doomslayers. Everything's gone wrong. The border's broken. You know all these failures that Biden has racked up, and not Tim Scott. Tim Scott talks about the optimism and positive nature of America, and and how, as I've said before on your show, African Americans and Latinos have had to have been the most optimistic people on the planet mm-hmm. because we oftentimes don't have much to feel optimistic about, but we still manage to get up in the morning and go to work. Mm-hmm. And, and so he taps into that and that positiveness, that kind of Ronald Reagan positiveness is very strong and it's going to carry you through. I would say that you do not get that much money just on white folks trying to prove they're not racist. That's, a, that's definitely in the mix for sure. Mm-hmm. But to get over $20 million, I think uh, it means there's something else going on there. I think the positive nature of it, I think the fact that he is in a different league from other African Americans who've been like window dressing in the Democrat and the Congressional, I'm sorry, the presidential field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen Alan Keyes, we've seen Ben Carson, we've seen Herman Cain, but these are never serious candidates who are going to do much. Tim Scott is a U.S. senator. Okay, <laughs> he's a U.S. senator. Uh, he already has stature. He already knows how to, to run a campaign. I think all of this stuff bodes well for him. And he's really putting the uh, those folks back on their heels. Yeah, it's not I, just about race; it's about his sunny optimism. I should mention that Tim Scott, you know, some of that money he trans- transferred from his Senate campaign. We still raised a lot of money, though. Um, and he's sitting again in second place, wherever the money came from. He's sitting in second place to Donald Trump right now in fundraising. Uh, but again, some of that uh, was transferred from his Senate campaign. Of course, President Biden only has twenty point one million um, in his account right now, but he also. Uh, is not uh, disconnected from that huge uh, fundraising haul that the Democratic Party uh, just reported. That's that's money they will spend, of course, on him. Um, so that's not all of his funds. And again, it's early, but I, I, I want to just make the point uh, that Tim Scott, uh, Tim Scott's raising money, and we will see, you know, how long that allows him to stick around. By contrast, Ruben, right quick, Mike Pence, former Vice President, who entered the race on June the fifth, has raised. Hear me now. A mere, a scant $1.2 million. I think Ruben Navarrete has more than $1.2 million in his bank account. That's all that Mike <laughs> Pence has raised since getting in yeah. this race, $1.2 million. Um, I think Mike Pence uh, ain't going to survive very long, Ruben, with $1.2 million. What do you make? That, that's, that's, that's embarrassing to have been the former vice president and only raised $1.2 million. There's no place for Mike Pence to stand in this race, yeah. right? He, he, he most famously took a stand against uh, Donald Trump. He is probably the opponent Donald Trump hates the most. If you love Trump, you hate Pence. There's, there's no space there that isn't otherwise being occupied. 
Every other door is being occupied. Cultural warrior, yeah, that's Ron DeSantis. You know, MAGA, that's Trump. There's no place for Pence to stand. This is unfortunate because Pence just had a great moment uh, a week or two in Iowa, in Sioux City, uh, in a pizza parlor where a woman stood up and basically accused him of ruining the country and giving the presidency to Biden because on January 6th, why didn't you uh, cancel all some of these votes and refuse to certify the election, right? And he said, he, he scolded her. He just flat out said, no, that's not the way I read the Constitution. You're wrong. And that was a good moment for Mike Pence, but it may be too little too late. Um, just in case you're curious, uh, I mentioned that Ron DeSantis has $12.2 million on hand. Uh, Nikki Haley, $6.8 million. Robert Kennedy challenging Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, $4.5 million on hand. Yep. yep, uh, yep. And um, right down there with Mike Pence, <laughs> Chris Christie, for all that bluster, Chris Christie's only raised $1.6 million. For all that bluster. Um, there you have some numbers about uh, who's raising money uh, in this presidential race. When we come forward, as I promised a moment ago, we'll talk a bit about the Republican Party, the GOP, and its ongoing, its expanding race problem. We'll continue with Ruben when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. So, Ruben, on top of the uh, comments uh, of days ago, Tommy Tuberville basically uh, uh, explaining that white supremacists are just Americans with a different point of view. You recall that comment. Um, he didn't want to back down from his defense of uh, of um, white supremacists, uh, right. Republican out of Alabama. Now we have a legislature mm -hmm. on. The, now we have a legislator on the floor in the Arizona House referring to black folk as colored folk. Um, that's become a huge story. Um, they just can't get get out of their own way uh, when it comes to race. And I, I I raise this because it's the flip side. Of what I you and I were just talking about with Tim Scott. It's hard to 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 it's hard to, to 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 split the baby this way. On, on on the one hand, Tim Scott is raising money. He's he's in second place only to Donald Trump, uh, and so Republicans can advance this notion that yeah, we're open to an African American candidate on the Republican uh, Republican side of the aisle, and yet all these other Republicans keep having these foot-in-the-mouth moments. And I won't even, I, let me back up. I'm not even going to call them foot-in-the-mouth moments. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I don't want to proselytize this morning, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If it's in your heart, it's going to come out. And all these Republicans keep making these comments, but this legislator on the floor in Arizona, in the Arizona legislature calling black folk coloreds, and I mean, I digress, Reuben, but... <laughs> They, they, they got a serious race problem, and it ain't getting no better. That's my point. Your take. It's true. Both I'd say both political parties have a serious race problem. We tend to grade on the curve when Democrats put their foot in their mouth on race. You know, I mentioned before the 95 crime bill. One of the things that Joe Biden said when trying to sell that crime bill was saying, man, we do everything but hang people for jaywalking, right? Until someone pulled Joe Biden aside and said, maybe since you're yeah. talking about the crime bill, yeah. you don't want to use the word hanging, exactly. right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have, you know, the famous example of when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, it was not the case that the Democratic Party establishment just all rallied around him. They fought him every step of the way. The voters, the Democratic voters turned out in places like Iowa to elect him. And good for them. But the establishment, the mostly white establishment worked against him. You recall all the boneheaded comments from Senator John Kerry, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, former uh you know, Democratic or vice presidential candidate Geraldine Ferraro. Uh, just go Google these names, right? And most famously, you had Bill Clinton out there, who all of a sudden, guess what happened during Bill, to Bill Clinton? He turned into an old white guy from the South. Mm -hmm. You know, he was always a white guy from the South, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we've given him a pass, but then when he started talking about 
you know, Barack Obama's campaign being a fairy tale and how it's no big deal. He won South Carolina because so Jesse Jackson won South Carolina. Everybody gave him a pass. I keep score. I'm keeping the receipts, Tavis, on both political parties. I'm not letting the Republicans off the hook, but it is very damaging uh, to the long-term interests of African-Americans and Latinos to keep grading one party on the curve because that has not served us well. We need to call both parties out. So, yeah, foot and mouth disease on race? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a white thing, you see? That's not a a Republican thing. That's a white thing. And there are white Democrats who likewise stick their foot in their mouth on race. Yep. I should clarify, um, uh, the the Arizona representative representative I'm speaking of is Eli Crane, if you want to know his name. Uh, Eli Crane, Republican of Arizona, uh, uh, again, referred to to us, black folk as colored folk, on, on the floor of the House. Uh, at the Capitol in Washington, uh, referred us as colored people uh, while promoting an, uh, an anti-woke proposal, uh, as he would put it, an anti-woke proposal he was uh, advancing on the floor of the House. Uh, but he, anyway, referred to us as as, as colored people. <laughs> this is 2023, and you got Representative Eli Crane using that kind of language on the House floor. I digress. Our remaining moments with Ruben Averett Jr. when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15 got just a few minutes left in this conversation. Ruben, let me circle back to uh, um, an issue that I referenced earlier in this conversation that we didn't actually talk about. I want to close on this note, and it is the piece that I mentioned that you wrote uh, a week ago on affirmative action, uh, and I was honored to you know sit and talk to you and share my thoughts, and you did a, a, a nice piece um, in your column syndicated by the Washington Post about affirmative action. Here's my question. Um, to what extent uh, do you think that this issue uh, is going to play uh, in the presidential race, when I say this issue, I mean this notion um, that African Americans, in particular, uh, are feeling put upon with all of these decisions coming out of the Supreme Court uh, that don't bode well for their future. Well, that's certainly true that they feel that way, and they should feel that way, and so should Latinos uh, feel that way because the Supreme Court has proven they're not our friends. They may do something that I don't object to, mm-hmm. but that's different than me saying, oh, well, they have their, our best interests at heart. They didn't make that argument. They didn't strike down affirmative action in college admissions because they thought it was hurting black and brown folks. I was open to hearing that argument. You know, I, I find that argument persuasive. But they didn't say that. They said, no, uh, it hurts uh, Asians and white folks, which is something that um, the black and brown folks normally roll, roll their eyes at, and they lose us there. Uh, so I don't know if this, uh, in, I don't know if this motivates black voters or brown voters any more than we're already motivated not to uh, see Donald Trump return to the White House. I think that is the the overriding motivator that will get us to the polls. Uh, but clearly, white folks are on the march. Uh, whether it's critical race theory or you know a DEI programs or it's or affirmative action, it's too. There's too many things to call it a coincidence. Mm-hmm. They're on the march. There is a pushback. Uh, white folks are tired of being, feeling put on the spot and put upon. Uh, they feel that they're being discriminated against, left, right, and center. And they're tired of it. They're not going to take it anymore. And this is the year that they have decided to uh, get even, uh, dig in and get even. And so that's unfortunate. Once On one issue after another, one front after another, um, white folks have declared the civil rights movement over. Yeah. Um, civil rights movement is over, uh, as they see it, but the civil war continues. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. The civil war ain't over yet. Uh, we're, we're fighting now, uh, about whether or not we're going to be these United States or, or, or a, 
a country of white supremacist rule. Um, so, again, another conversation for another time. Let me ask you right quick in the 45 seconds we have left. I thought I heard yeah. you say, I thought I heard you say yeah. um, that um, that Latinos and blacks don't want Donald Trump to return to the White House. Um, are you seeing polling that suggests that on your side? Because every time we have one of these races, I get scared about your community abandoning us and Trump getting too no. many Latino votes. So what numbers are you looking yeah. at? I ain't seen them yet. Yeah, there's two different questions there. Trump does get too many Latino votes, but he doesn't get a majority of Latino right. votes. Agreed. So you're always going to have a majority of the votes going to the Democratic Party. I would argue undeservedly so, because the Democratic Party doesn't do much for my community and hasn't really done much but take us for granted. But that being the case, you're always going to see a majority of Latinos vote for the Democratic candidate. They have since 1960. In every presidential election since 1960, a majority of Latinos have voted for the Democratic Party. And you can see where it's gotten us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just concerned about Trump siphoning off just enough to do what he needs to do. But again, I digress for the moment. We'll talk about that in the days, weeks and months to come uh, as we head toward the 2024 presidential race. For now, we thank our friend and brother Ruben Alvarez Jr., uh, host of the Ruben in the Center podcast, uh, syndicated column by The Washington Post, making him the most widely read Latino columnist in the country. And I'm always delighted to be in dialogue with Ruben. Ruben, we'll do it again, my friend. All the best. You have a good day. Thank you. Take care, brother. Hour two of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 15.